You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. In this episode, I share the five tools that I rely on to protect my mental wellness. When doing this work of unpacking unconscious biases, one has to really have things in place to help protect your mental wellness. I define mental wellness as the ability to stay present and stay focused and stay in peace. And when there's so many people who have so many different opinions about the way in which this work needs to be done, it's so critical that one has super strong boundaries in this area. The difference between boundaries and barriers is that with barriers, you don't let anyone in. And so I'm not talking about erecting these walls that no one can get around or through or in. Instead, boundaries leaves the door askew, slightly open, so that people understand that, yes, there's a way to get access to you. However, there are some protections in place. And so it's so critical that when doing this work that you have those boundaries, because if you identify as highly sensitive or a deep feeler, you cannot join every fight and you cannot join every cause. Otherwise, you're going to overextend yourself and end up doing nothing at all. I became aware of my porous and very poor boundaries when I went through my year of waking early to write, to decolonize and deconstruct the narrative I've been led to believe around my social and biological identities. And one of the big issues that came up was boundaries. As I looked back on my life and saw all the ways I allowed people unfettered access to my space, my money, my emotions, my body, my resources, and I can keep going on and on and on, that my clients and my supposed best friends and my dating relationships all mirrored the same personality. And it was a personality of individuals who would take and take and take and take. I was really floored by how each person in my professional and personal relationships acted like each other. And of course, as part of my awakening, I realized that even though I was attracting these individuals, the consistent person was always me. And that was a wake-up call for me to start to identify what are my boundaries so that I would stop people-pleasing, that I would stop being addicted to the disease to please, and to fully understand the difference between overgiving and generosity. You see, I didn't want my boundaries to change who I am. I consider myself to be a kind and nice person, and I didn't want to become so jaded that I would put up barriers instead. And there are a few characteristics between overgiving and generosity. Overgiving is done out of obligation, whereas generosity is done from a place of overflow. 
In other words, you've taken care of your needs, whether that be self-care needs, emotional needs, financial needs. And then what you do is from a place of overflow of what you have left, that's where you give from. And that's the difference between overgiving and generosity. Again, the profound difference is that one feels like obligation and the other one is where you give from overflow. And so I didn't want to change the nature of who I am, but I knew that I had to do so from a place where I'm nourished, where I put myself first. And being raised in a fundamental Protestant religion where I was taught that it's God first, then others, then you, you can imagine that in everything I did, I put myself last. But by putting myself last, I had nothing left. I would often go to bed irritated and upset at something, and I couldn't really pinpoint what it was. And again, it wasn't until I went through my year of writing early where I woke before 5 a.m. to write in a stream of consciousness way that I started the hard work of unpacking what was at the core of my people-pleasing. And if you identify as highly sensitive or a deep feeler, one of the reasons why we people-please is to hide our sensitivities. If most of your life you've heard nothing but, oh, don't be so shy, you're such a crybaby, why are you so sensitive? Then you begin to associate sensitivities with something really bad. So as a way to mask our sensitive selves, what we do is we people-please. And we give too much of our time, our resources, our money, and so on in an effort so that people can appreciate our doing instead of our being. That if someone criticizes your offer of either working or doing a task, that you're shielded from that critique being of you and your personality. Because being critiqued about who you are hurts really deep. But if someone criticizes the task that you've done, then there's some sort of barrier or protection against the critique of you. But at the end of the day, instead of feeling safe and secure and supported, we instead, over years and years and years of people-pleasing, we begin to feel tense, tired, and trapped. And that tension and that feeling of being trapped shows up in the ways that we abuse our bodies and abuse ourselves and allow others to be abusive towards us. And that abuse isn't just physical, but there's also other ways in which abuse can happen. Now, I want to take a moment to just say that I'm not blaming the victim. I'm not trying to say that because you hid your sensitivities, you made yourself open to abuse. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I'm trying to say is that when we get into a lifelong habit of muting our sensitivities, and hiding our compassion and empathy, we then adopt other destructive patterns. And as a result, we don't show up as our whole selves. Ultimately, what we are afraid of and what I was afraid of was this deep sense of rejection. I didn't like feeling rejected by anyone. And thus, whatever whims people had, I followed it quite simply so that I can feel accepted and feel like I had a sense of belonging. But the problem is, givers always give and takers always take. And that creates such a deep imbalance. 
that at the end of the day, for highly sensitive people and deep feelers, it really cuts at our soul. So in order for us to solve that part of ourselves that doesn't want to be rejected, we have to do a deep excavation process to figure out where the roots of that rejection comes from. Were you rejected by a caregiver or a parent? Maybe you felt a sense of rejection from someone else in your life who held authority over you. For those of us who have experienced fatherlessness or motherlessness, and that's where a male parent, fatherlessness is a male parent who's absent emotionally or physically. Motherlessness is a female parent who is absent emotionally and or physically. And the absence can be defined by either a voluntary separation from the family or involuntary, which could be through a court order or incarceration, or simply that a parent passed away very early. And there are studies that show that a child who loses their parent to an early death or whether they lost their parent because they just chose to leave the family, that both of those absences have the same effect. There are even some, and I've read this in a couple of books, where they believe that depending at what stage in your development the parent went absent also has different effects on the child. And so if a child lost their parent at 13 years old, then their development will be different into adulthood than someone who was abandoned while still in the womb. So it's rather fascinating, and you can do a lot of research in this area, and you'll find that for most of us, that feeling of the fear of rejection stems from an early childhood situation. For some of us who are the eldest child in the family, we may have learned that in order to be accepted by our parents, we needed to parent our youngest siblings, our younger siblings. Or if you were the only girl in the family of boys, then you were saddled with the parenting of your brothers. Maybe your eldest cousin or maybe the eldest foster child in the foster home. And oftentimes the eldest child is saddled with parenting their younger cousins or younger siblings, and that carries through into adulthood. So these are all situations where it can contribute to us wanting to people please that we then carry into our adult years. And then, whew, let's not include race, boy. Because when a racial dynamic is introduced, then a white person will automatically feel the need to parent a black, brown, or indigenous person. And that creates the whole white saverism complex where white people are socialized to save, rescue, and fix black, indigenous, and people of color. And so that's also a dynamic that needs to be explored as well, especially if you are white or someone with skin color privilege due to your proximity to whiteness. You need to unpack that as well. I do have writing prompts for several of these things that I mentioned. In particular, I have a new writing prompt 
that was introduced called the power of being misunderstood. Because trying to have people understand you is also a need to avoid rejection. This was a question I asked someone the other day as they were sharing with me their troubling relationship with one of their parents. And so I stopped the person. I just said, why is it so important for you to be understood? What would happen if you release the need to be understood by this parent? And the room fell silent. It's like the air sucked out of the room. And that person reported back to me a few weeks later that they had investigated that question. They sat down with why it was so important not to be misunderstood. And they had such a powerful breakthrough. And so I've written up a new prompt around that in order to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers to unpack that part of themselves that is so desperate for approval and for being understood. So as I started to develop better boundaries, one of the things that I discovered is that it's a work in progress, that I didn't have it all right and perfect right from the beginning. There were elements along the way when I thought I had really strong boundaries, but then a situation popped up. Maybe it was a particular person or a particular situation. And I found that my boundaries were relaxed and I was right back to that place of feeling irritated and angry and frustrated around letting someone take advantage of me. And I've come to accept that when one sets up boundaries, and again, this is leading into the five tools that I use to protect my mental wellness, that boundaries become something that although I continue to develop, that often from time to time, there will be a slight slip. And that is okay, because that's all part of stumbling bravely. When I first was called an anti-racist educator, a title that just rubs me the wrong way because my work goes beyond just skin color or critiques of skin color privilege. And my work goes beyond critical race theory. I talk about bias, bias in terms of productivity, bias in terms of our boundaries, bias in terms of our ancestry. So when my blog post went viral in October 2017, and I was suddenly thrust into the limelight and being called anti-racism educator, I was not clear about my boundaries in that area. That although the term rankled me and irritated me, I wasn't as clear that you should not call me that. And so that terminology also gave me the impression that I had to act a certain way as an anti-racism educator. And so I took a page out of what I thought were the traits of an anti-racism educator. And I can't say that it fit the personality of who I am now, today, always. I don't want to say what those traits were that I had adopted because I don't want to give the impression that that way is the wrong way to be an anti-racism educator. And then the way that I am now is the best way. Because we will approach our work as anti-racism educators, as anti-bias facilitators, and there I am saying us, our, after saying I don't want to be called an anti-racism educator. But the way that we approach this work in helping us to unpack our relationship to the dominant culture is going to be different. 
Some are going to come from an approach that is more forceful, that is more direct and in your face. And that is their style and that style resonates with some people. And then there's a style that is less direct. There's a style that focuses more on restorative justice. And even then within that particular realm, different people will teach in different ways. It's similar to if you go to the gym to hire a personal trainer. There are some personal trainers that are like a really boot camp style where they bark orders at you. They keep, you know, move it, move it, move it. And that's their style. I kind of resonate with that style. <laughs> that's the type of personal trainer that I need. Someone's like, hey, get up, go, go, yeah, uh, knees up. And then there are personal trainers that don't have that approach, that boot camp style. Their style is a bit different. I'm tempted to say softer, but I don't want to use that terminology. It's just different. And there are some people who resonate with that style, a more quieter voice, a more collaborative approach. And that's okay too. There's no right way or wrong way to do this. And there's no right style or wrong style when it comes to the work of unpacking your unconscious biases. To me, all styles matter. And it matters because different voices and different styles will reach different people. And that's part of my boundaries. I'm very clear that I'm not for everyone. I'm very clear that the way that I approach my work as an anti-bias facilitator is going to be vastly different from others. I'm also very clear that there's a small segment of this work that I focus on, whereas there are other people who do the entire suite, beginning, middle, end. I'm aware that my work is primarily focused to highly sensitive people and deep feelers. It's particularly of interest to those who love journaling. And my work is an invitation into the process. So if someone says, Lisa, can you help with our corporate culture? Can you come in and help our team and department? Well, I either refer them to one of my certified facilitators who has that expertise, or there are several other different individuals that they can go to who have expertise in helping you change corporate culture. I'm all about individual results. I'm all about the invitation into the work. And that's where I know my lane is, and that's where my lane ends. I'm not trying to be the one-stop shop. I'm not trying to be all things to all people because there are also personal projects that are of interest to me. But again, that's all part of setting up those boundaries. The book that completely changed how I approach the way that I do anti-bias work is a book called The Sovereignty of Quiet by Kevin Kwashi. It was referred to me by my sister friend, Layla Saad. I had a conversation with her, and that episode will be coming up in a few weeks. She mentioned the book. She said, Lisa, you have to get this book. This is so you. And then one of my patrons by the name of Deb actually gifted it to me. And that book changed everything for me. I read it, I think it was in the middle part of 2018. And one of the things that I remember right in the introduction is that Professor Kwashi says that the expectation that Blackness is public, that Blackness must be seen 
that blackness is expressive and boisterous and that blackness can only be seen if it's lamenting about race is in and of itself racism. That blackness can be allowed to have a quiet life, an inner life, an inner wilderness that it explores. That blackness doesn't have to be always seen as it's lamenting about race. That blackness is allowed to have solitude and silence. Reading that passage in Professor Kwashi's book was everything I needed to know about how to show up authentically as me. And as I started to shift towards the Lisa that I'm born to be, that's when my community started to grow even more. And I can't tell you how important it is to do the inner work of unpacking your unconscious biases because it's like clearing the ice jam in a river or a canal in order to make sure that boats have a passage to the other side that they need to clear out the ice jams that will jam up the waterways. And this is the same with unconscious biases. In order for you to get to where it is you're supposed to go in terms of your purpose, in terms of your relationships, in terms of what you're supposed to actually be doing in this life, you have to clear your own personal ice jam inside. And you can only do that when you start doing the inner work. Let's take a quick break and you'll hear from one of my patrons in the sponsored message. And when we return, I'll start to share the five tools. Hello, my name is Rebecca Baruki. I am a mother of five. That's my most important job. An author of books for big and little readers, a publisher, a meditation guide, and I run my own nonprofit that delivers free books to students in need all over the United States. And I am a huge fan of Lisa Renee Hall, her work, her presence, and especially her Patreon and the work she does there with Inner Field Trip. As a Black biracial woman, it has been a big part of unpacking unconscious bias that lives within me about others in my community, other people in this world, but also the unconscious bias I hold toward myself, my inner oppression, the anti-Blackness that lives in me and that has stifled me from being and expressing my full self. The journaling prompts, the way that she guides me through unpacking old stuff that I have looked at so many times, but prompting me to look at it in new ways. The way that she does that is genius. I've been doing this work, this anti-racism work since I began my work in wellness. So it's been about 12 years now that I've been very actively working towards more access, especially in the mental wellness spaces, the mental health spaces wanting people that come from places like I do, from poverty, from lack of access to healthcare, to have better access to wellness tools that are so exclusive, that are so white. So I've been doing this work for 12 years and the missing piece was me being able to unpack and reveal my unconscious bias. And allowing that to come forward has allowed me to work with people in a more honest way. 
So I love being part of the Patreon community. I love bringing my audience there. I love inviting Lisa to talk to my clients because I know that when they walk away, they're going to walk away with a sense of not only greater knowing about themselves, greater connection to themselves, but also more motivation and more inspiration towards moving forward through this work that can be so challenging and so confrontational. For the first time, I see them enthusiastic about the work, ready to do the work because they feel and they see the healing that can happen so quickly when you dive in in a way that's intentional and a way that's sincere and a way that is predicated on love of self and others. So I adore Lisa and I adore her work and I feel so privileged to know her and her work and to bring people to it. And most of all though, I'm just very, very grateful for what she's done for me. And I'm back. I'm going to share the five tools I rely on to protect my mental wellness. Before I get into tool number one, I wanted to point out that talk therapy or meeting with a therapist is one of the more common tools or more popular tools that people think of. And I hate referring to therapists as a tool. Therapy is a form of medicine or a tool that most people think of when they hear mental illness or mental wellness. And yes, talk therapy or meeting with a therapist is a form of protecting your mental wellness. However, for some, meeting with a therapist is financially out of reach, but it's not impossible. For example, you can use virtual therapy services, which tend to be less expensive compared to meeting with a therapist in person. Another option is if you work full time and you have benefits is to check in with your employer. Many employers pay for employee assistance where therapy services is covered as part of your benefit plan. Your employer doesn't know who went to seek therapy services. They just know that someone on their payroll did and they have to cover the costs. So there is privacy built in and you may want to take a look at your benefits plan to see if therapy services is covered. You may also want to check with your state or provincial governments or even your city-based governments to see if they have subsidies available to cover therapy services. And finally, there are foundations that have been founded that will subsidize the cost of therapy services. You'll just need to do that research to find out what they are. So while talk therapy or meeting with a therapist is one way to protect your mental wellness, I actually rely on five other tools, which I'm going to get into right now. All right, now for tool number one. Let me start off with stream of consciousness writing, of course. This is what I use to decolonize and deconstruct my identity. And it helped me to get very, very clear on the stuff that was holding me back. And so I explored several different things in Over the course of one year, I wrote 365 consecutive days before 5 a.m. And I wrote just over half a million words. Now, these are words I haven't looked back on. I haven't published in any way. It's just a way for me to clear my head. 
If you're interested, there is research by Dr. James Pennebaker, who has done years and years and years of studies around the impact of writing to heal or therapeutic journaling. Now, I don't use that terminology because I am not a therapist and I'm not here to help people work through their childhood wounds. I'm not a therapist and I don't play one online. But what I do, I call it stream of consciousness writing. And that's terminology that comes from Julia Cameron's book called The Artist's Way. And I understand she's coming out with a brand new 25th anniversary edition celebrating 25 years of her book influencing so many creatives. In her book, she talks about stream of consciousness writing being done first thing in the morning to help get all the junk in the whiny stuff out of your head so that you can unlock your creativity. Well, I use stream of consciousness writing to help us to unlock our sensitivities so that we reclaim our humanity. And I found that because this process worked for me over the course of a year and It's also something I continue to rely on anytime I'm feeling out of sorts. Then naturally, this is something that I teach others to do as well. Now, stream of consciousness writing as a way to unpack your unconscious biases does not work for everyone. So if someone comes into my orbit and they go to the nine free writing prompts at exploringbias.com, again, that's exploringbias.com, if they go there, and they try out one of the nine prompts, one, two, three, many, for my viral blog post. And they find that, yeah, this, this ain't for me. That's fine. I'm not here to try to win everyone over. It's either it works for you or it does not. And there's a researcher by the name of Dr. Joshua Smythe who has done research into this and has found that those who tend to have more quiet and sensitive personalities tend to respond better to stream of consciousness writing as a therapeutic tool. Hence the reason why I'm very clear that I speak to and work with highly sensitive people and deep feelers. Because why try to convince and cajole people into believing that stream of consciousness writing can work at unpacking unconscious biases when there's research that shows that it does not work for everyone. And so even to this day, I continue to use stream of consciousness writing for myself. My mentor coaches, who you heard a few episodes back, continue to do so as well. And to be honest, you can say that you're doing stream of consciousness writing, but your body, how you carry yourself and how you carry your words will betray you every time. And this is something that Layla and I talked in episode that's coming up. Because her work, Me and White Supremacy, is the same thing too. You use prompts to work through your unconscious biases using stream of consciousness writing. And a colleague of mine by the name of Dr. Frantonia said that proximity to the work isn't doing the work. And I want to edit that slightly to say proximity to the writing prompts isn't doing the work. And as too often people come through my orbit They tell me that they're doing stream of consciousness writing using my prompts, but their body and the way they carry their body and the way they carry the words, in other words, the way they speak their words, betrays them every time. And I know that they are not doing what they think that they're doing. So it's important that if you adopt stream of consciousness writing 
as a way to protect your mental wellness that you're actually doing it. Now, having prompts to guide you is ideal because then you can center your inner oppressor and tell it what you want to focus on. I've heard from people who said that I tried to use stream of consciousness writing before, but I didn't know what to focus on and I was all over the place. So Lisa, your guided prompts help me to center in, helps me to say to my inner oppressor, this is what we're going to talk about. And then the person captures the ramblings of their inner oppressor using stream of consciousness writing. So I've given you some resources if you want to dig deeper into the research around why stream of consciousness writing works and helping to unpack unconscious biases. The second tool that I use to protect my mental wellness is a sacred no. Okay, so what do I mean by that? There's a book by the name of The Power of a Positive No. And in it, William Urey, the author, says this, that when you know what you're saying yes to, your no becomes easy. So for me, my no is sacred because I know exactly what I'm saying yes to. We have the wrong approach when it comes to the word no. We believe that we just say no. And for some of us, it's so hard to say no because we're afraid that we're going to miss out on opportunities or we're afraid of fracturing the relationship or we're afraid that we're not going to have ways in which to be creative and be innovative and so on. And so we recoil at uttering no because of those reasons. If we had a different outlook on the word no, that instead of just saying no for no sake, that you're actually saying yes to something that's very, very, very important to you, then yes, your no becomes easy, super easy to utter. There's a writing prompt that I wrote that's called Map Your Border. And it's a three-step process in how to understand what you're actually saying yes to. This is more than just choosing a word out of the air or looking at a list of words and saying, which of these words work for you? People do that values exercise and it's a good start. But the map your border writing prompts goes a step deeper. And in fact, it's not about choosing words from a list and then trying to decide what's the most important. It's actually a different approach. And I learned this from a book called The Power of One by Lewis Cantrell. I think it's Cantrell. If the last name is not correct, I'll put it in the show notes for this episode. So there's a point in time that I was thinking about producing a one-woman show. And I actually did a one-woman show at the church where I play the organ. It was called Mary, A Mother's Story. And so I wanted to capture Mary's story because every time people do Christmas concerts, it's always from the perspective of Jesus and his birth. And so I asked myself, who else were actors in that story? And I don't mean actors as in playing a part. I mean, like in terms of what other characters were central to Jesus's birth and what can we glean from their participation in such a way that we develop something that we can really attach to. So I thought to myself, well, instead of writing about Jesus's birth, how about writing a Christmas story, but from his mother's perspective. And so I got this book called The Power of One, 
and got this really cool exercise that I've expanded upon in this three-part series called Map Your Border. So one of the ways that you can get access to this writing prompt is to join my community on Patreon. I think it might still be there. If not, then you can wait for the workbook to come out called Explore Biases Now. So yes, it's very essential to know what you're saying yes to. So what am I saying yes to? I'm saying yes to being a better ancestor. And what does that mean? It means I'm looking seven generations ahead and asking myself, the actions I do today, how will that be of benefit to my descendants seven generations from now? And your descendants doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to share your biology. Right now, I am child-free. I still have a few more years left. And if having children is supposed to be part of my life's purpose, it will happen. I'm not worried. If it doesn't, I have given birth and continue to give birth to other things that future generations can benefit from. And so I'm saying yes to that. When I was getting up every morning to write before 5 a.m., I was saying yes to decolonizing my identity. It meant that I had to say no to a lot of things. I even said no to one of my good friends who was having a birthday party and had invited me to come out. And I had to tell him I can't come because if I come, it means I won't get home till pretty late, which means I won't be able to wake the next morning to do my writing. So I knew what I was saying yes to, and therefore my no becomes easy. And so you have to understand what you're saying yes to so that you can say no to a lot of the things that pop up. For example, are you going to join that particular march? Are you going to go to that sit-in? Are you going to write letters to your politician about a particular social injustice? If it's no, then what are you saying yes to? Identify your yes by mapping your border. Then your no becomes easy. The third tool that I rely on in order to protect my mental wellness is looking to the past. Some see the past as filled with nothing but trauma and drama. And so it's not uncommon that many people will want to avoid looking into the past because they're reminded of some of the pain and suffering they've been through. But what if the past also held the answers that we seek? What if in the past, our ancestors made decisions and choices that can help us either make the same ones today, especially the ones that are good and beneficial, and then the ones where our ancestors cause harm, what if that we could use their examples to change for something better? I call this your ancestral remembrance, where you look back and you start to understand the lives lived by ancestors who have passed on. We do this work of looking into the past at our ancestors, not to pass blame, but to understand where we can do something different. For some of us, we are afraid of looking into the past because we have ancestors who have done a lot of harm. For me, I have ancestry that includes both the oppressed and the oppressors. I know the Scotsman that's in my family tree. I know his name. I know where he came from. I know he was married to. I have a Frenchman in my family tree. Again, I know where he was born. I know his parents names. I know his uncle's names. I know all his brothers and sisters and so on. And I have an Irishman in my family tree. Again, I know his name. And I know why all three of these men 
were on the island of Jamaica. And as a result of their complicity with the system which existed at the time, which was a plantation economy that relied on brutalizing in violent ways my West African ancestors who were held in bondage, that both these are true for my bloodline. That seven generations ago, these individuals, these European men who managed plantations on the island of Jamaica, held my West African ancestors in bondage. And so the question becomes, how do I handle this? As a descendant, seven generations removed, how do I handle knowing that both the blood of the oppressed and the oppressors exists in my family tree? For some, or maybe for you, you might be a fifth-generation colonizer. And you know that if you go as far back as you can, you're going to discover the name of an ancestor that caused so much harm in the name of nation building. Well, it's not an opportunity to sit in sorrow and shame and guilt around what your ancestor did. Instead, you need to know and discover their names so that you can right a historical wrong using reparations or using your privilege to fight on the side of justice. Often I talk about ancestral remembrance and people will say things like, well, Lisa, I don't know my ancestors. I was adopted. Or for many African-Americans especially, they are only able to go back a certain number of generations before they meet with this, what one of my history professors called this impenetrable wall. It's this wall that you can't go beyond because either the records don't exist or the people have died and you can't ask them those questions. And so for many African-Americans and those of African descent that has chattel slavery that interrupted their bloodline, there is an absence of records and it means that their research will stop at a certain point. There are things you can do, and I explain all this in one of my programs called Decolonize Your Ancestry. It's a wonderful program. I mean, I developed it in response to patrons who were taking DNA tests, and they're like, okay, what now? (laughs) I found out that I'm 50% this and 10% that. Okay, but what now? And so I developed a program, a course, to help guide them through that process. And one of my more successful patrons, Julie Parker, who provided a testimonial a few episodes back, has really adopted her Celtic ancestral background into her work today. And that's what makes her truly unique. That instead of identifying herself based on skin color alone, where skin color is not a culture, she has instead gone as far back as she can to discover her Celtic roots. And that's what she brings forward in all of her work. And if you take a look at her website, and I'll link to it in the show notes, you'll see how multicultural her gatherings are. And it's beautiful to witness. And it's not just because she adopted her Celtic roots. Julie has been doing deep, deep, deep excavation work around the way in which she shows up as a white woman. So there's a lot of deep work that she's done. But you'll marvel that if you take a look at her business website, you take a look at the gatherings that she has, of course, in the pre-COVID-19 era, you'll notice that there's not a lot of pretense. This is not fake. She's not slapping up photos, stock images that she found somewhere 
and wanting to give the impression that she has a multicultural group. No, it's for real. And a lot of it has to do with the deep work of going back into the past to get to know her ancestors. And one thing I want to mention is how your ancestors show up for you. That's going to depend largely on your belief system. For me, the way my ancestors show up is I find out their names. I do as much research to understand the times that they're living in. And then I write up my interpretation of their profile. And then it helps me to understand some of their choices and why they made the decisions that they did in terms of migration patterns, in terms of where they lived, in terms of the people that they married, in terms of the number of children they had, and so on. For some, ancestors show up in their dreams. Others, they do something else and their ancestors show up and speak to them. For some, and this is something I'm going to talk about in just a moment, ancestors show up in the form of animals and nature. And so however that works for you, I'm not here to tell you this is the way that your ancestors must show up to you because it all largely depends on our belief system. But it's important that we dig into the past because the past holds the answers we seek and it helps us to avoid repeating destructive patterns over and over again. The fourth tool that I rely on in order to protect my mental wellness is nature. In particular, a concept known as forest bathing. I recently came across the research done by Dr. Quinn Ling. He's a Japanese scholar and researcher and therapist who has written extensively around this concept of forest bathing. There's a Japanese term for this, which I'm not even going to pronounce because I don't want to do that term injustice with my mispronunciation. But I'll link to that word in the show notes. In English, it's known as forest bathing. And it's something that has been introduced into Japanese culture in the 1980s as a way to combat the overworking or the culture of overwork that tends to dominate within Japanese society. And what it is, it's simply going out onto a trail, a hiking trail, a walking trail, and being amongst the canopy of trees and letting it encircle you and envelop you. Dr. Ling also suggests that you touch the bark of the trees and you feel that sensation in your fingers, that you close your eyes and you listen to the ways in which the branches are swaying in the breeze and then pick up on any scents, any smells and so on. Now, if you don't have access to green space, either because of distance or maybe there's some natural disaster that has occurred in your area, which makes you unable to be able to enjoy nature in its fullest right now, then you can find videos on YouTube where people have taken themselves on a hike and have coupled it with some soothing music, and you can use that as well. I'll link to a couple of videos in the show notes. You can also have an area of your home or apartment where you have nothing but green plants. And the plants, you can set them up in such a way to give the impression of green space. And you can sit by those plants, sit in front of them, sit around them, and have that be your inspiration. A few episodes back, I interviewed Asha Frost, who's an indigenous medicine woman. 
If you visit her on her Instagram profile, you'll see that she takes a lot of photos out in nature. And so for me, being out in the forest and knowing that my West African ancestors came from forested areas has helped me to become even more connected to the lands that are not indigenous to me. That for a long time, I couldn't connect with the lands of Turtle Island because my ancestors were displaced, forcibly removed from their indigenous lands to the island of Jamaica. And then, of course, my parents migrated from Jamaica to Canada in the early 70s. And so for a long time, I couldn't connect with these lands. And this is why, again, going back to one of the tools I mentioned, the ancestral connection is so key. Because once I was able to identify which areas of West Africa my ancestors come from, in particular, which ethnic groups, and so it's the Igbo ethnic group in present-day Nigeria, and I believe it's the Baka ethnic group of modern-day Cameroon. And what I'll do is I'll link to both those ethnic groups in the show notes. But I discovered that the Igbo people and the Baka people come from forested areas in West Africa. And that's where my ancestors dwelled. And so once that became so evident to me, it meant that whenever I go out on hiking trails, I feel a deep, deep, deep connection to the forest. That although these are not my indigenous lands, they do represent the indigenous lands that my ancestors came from. And as a result, I have a deeper appreciation and a deeper care for the lands of Turtle Island. Nature is not just trees. It's also animals. It's also the celestial bodies. So some will take their signs and signals and messages from the moon cycle, the way the stars show up in the sky. So it's totally up to you. For me, it's being out in nature, hiking, walking, being amongst the trees, a concept known as forest bathing. For you, it can be something completely different, and that is okay. And now the final tool that helps to protect my mental wellness is music, in particular playing the organ. Now, if you are someone who loves music, you love to play music, then do so and dance, 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 dance. I think we've forgotten how to move our bodies for pleasure. Now, here we are, we're moving our bodies to get to work, to get to school, to meet deadlines. But when was the last time that you moved your body for simple pleasure? Dancing, running, and running for no end result. You're not running for the bus. You're not running from someone. (laughs) You're running just because you feel free. And we don't do enough of rewarding our bodies. That's why there's this disconnection from our feelings. And so music is one way that can help you move your body. For me, I'm fortunate that I can play a musical instrument. I started playing on the piano and then moved to playing the organ when I was 16 years old. So this is a few decades worth of playing the organ. And that's the only instrument that I focus on. And I love how haunting the organ sounds that I can play the instrument. I mean, the organ that I play at the church where I play at has three manuals, so three sets of keys, and then, of course, the foot pedals. So I've got all four limbs going at the same time whenever I play a hymn. So yes, I'm moving my body. But what I love about the organ is that I can pull the stops 
And the stops are a bunch of different knobs that I can get certain sounds depending on which of the knobs are pulled out. That's why the saying pulling out all the stops, that comes from organs. When you pull out all the stops on the organ, it makes the loudest sound that you could ever hear inside a building. And so depending on which stops are pulled will depend on what sound I get. And so oftentimes I get a nice, if I want a quiet sound, I can reduce the sound. If I want to play a hymn really upbeat, then again, adjust the sound. But I love the way that the organ is so haunting and just sounds so beautiful. I can always pick up the organ in even pop songs. <laughs> There's a song by Boston called Foreplay slash Long Time. So foreplay is the introduction. And then about two minutes in, it moves into long time. And that entire, I think it's about three or four minutes, all I hear is the organ. That's it. And it's beautiful. <laughs> it's so stunning to hear in a rock song. The organ is just prominent. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons why I like that song so much is because of the organ. The organ is so powerful in a service. And okay, I can talk about the organ all day long, but what I want to focus on is the therapeutic aspect of either listening to music or playing a musical instrument. And as highly sensitive people and deep feelers, music takes on a different meaning because we can deeply appreciate it. In fact, we so appreciate music that it moves us to tears. It seems to touch our soul in such a way that other things cannot. And so whether you play a musical instrument or you have your favorite songs, music has a great way of resetting yourself. In fact, I will be participating in a fundraiser where I'm going to play the organ. I'm going to play hymns and Christmas tunes and Negro spirituals on the organ for as many hours as I can in order to raise funds for charities that focus on musical therapy. And so I'm excited about this. If you go to organmarathon.com, you can get more information. It's a fundraiser, so we'd love to have money come in. If you're in the greater Toronto area and you know my work, we also need volunteers. Because part of this isn't just to raise funds for charities focused on using music to help improve mental wellness, but it's also an opportunity for me to see if I can beat the Guinness World Record for the longest organ marathon playing. So there's two efforts that will be there. There'll be a personal effort to try to beat the record, which currently stands at 61 hours and 20 minutes. Oh, wow. And then, of course, there is a more altruistic reason, which is to raise funds. And so, again, go to organmarathon.com to find out more. So one way is to donate money. Second way is to donate your time during the effort. And the third way is to share this fundraiser. And I'm sharing this with you because I want to raise awareness on the power of music in terms of therapy. Many Indigenous groups, if you listen to the Asha Frost interview, she talks about drumming and singing as being tools or being medicine. Asha explained it really nicely. She said that the drum matches the heartbeat. And so when she's drumming in her circles, in her workshops, it's a way to reconnect the heart with what's going on in the room. And so music, that's one aspect of music and how it can influence your mental wellness. And so Go back in time and ask yourself, what were my favorite songs as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult? Listen to that. 
if there's a song that has captured your attention today, like a new pop song, sometimes I discover new ones like Drake and Rihanna and Cardi B, you know, I keep myself current. And so I listen to some of their music. But what moves me are typically songs sung a cappella style, as well as anything that has to do with string instruments or the organ. So a lot of classical music. That's one of my favorite genres. I love gospel and hymns that are sung just as is, right? Just sing the hymn as it is, just as it sounds. No introductions, don't remix it, just, and that tends to get me excited as well. And you need to find your way. And so, again, I encourage you, I mean, I'm raising awareness around the power of music as a mental wellness tool, and I encourage you to use that as well. And so just to recap, I talked about the five tools I use to protect my mental wellness. And you can listen back to this episode for all those tools. Tool number one is stream of consciousness writing. Tool number two is to understand what you're saying yes to so your no is easy. Tool number three is remembering your ancestors. Tool number four is spending time in nature. And tool number five is music. And for me, it's playing the organ. You can find out more about all the tools and resources I've mentioned this episode by going to www.innerfieldtrip.com. Search for episode 10. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely. <laughs>